The cost of a room in London can seem steeper than the roof on Big Ben. But armed with the right information, there's plenty you can do in London that won't break the budget. For instance, many of the city's top museums are free. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, expert blue badge guides to London join us to share tips for enjoying London affordably, like a local. They said the sun never set on the British Empire, and the Empire replied that was because no one would trust an Englishman in the dark. And we'll venture into the English countryside, where remnants from its distant past add a sense of mystery to your travels. Clues left by ancient Romans, Celts, and Druids give an insight into the wonders of prehistoric England. There's a great controversy. Archaeologists don't really acknowledge the existence of ley lines, but they are supposed lines of power that connect places of importance from our prehistoric times. Making London affordable and encountering ancient Britain. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We're sharing tips on enjoying London without going broke today on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we'll sort through the remains of prehistoric England, where stone circles and curious cliff drawings are just some of the mysteries connecting us with Romans, Druids, and Celts from centuries long past. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And share your stories and tips about England with us in our online feedback forum. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. If there's any city in Europe that strikes people as brutally expensive, I think it's got to be London. But it's also one of the most rewarding places you can ever travel. When it comes to eating and sleeping in London, it's undeniably expensive. But after that, there's a wonderland of cheap and free activities, sites, and museums that you can enjoy. As long as you get a roof over your head, the rest of it is relatively easy, if you know how to travel smart. That's what we're talking about today, exploring affordable London, and I'm joined by two great London guides, Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper. Gillian has been a guide for 30 years in London. Tom Hooper, 14 years, you're junior compared to Gillian. Tom, you you were a a barrister first, right? Yeah, I I switched from being a barrister, which is a type of lawyer in the UK, where, of course, no one ever wants to come and hear anything you say, to being a tour guide, tourist guide, as we would say often where people actually do want to come and listen to you. A more enjoyable sort more of More enjoyable, and the quality of life has changed with it. You know, when you think about people wanting to listen and so on, of course you think about Ireland and you got that gift of gab and it's just an art of conversation, but all across Britain and Ireland, uh, I think people enjoy sharing and talking and communicating, and it's just such a delight to travel to Britain and have a good guide like you guys to show you around. Mm. And people particularly enjoy discussion in pubs. In pubs. Well, yeah. that's a public house, right? Absolutely. So when you go to a pub, it's not like going to a dark tavern in the United States where no, you're going to no. sit in the corner and have a beer. It is a public scene. The many generations, grannies over there, the, yep. they're throwing the darts over here. Mm. You bring your dog. It's just the, the neighborhood living room. Yeah, and it's the center of our social life, isn't it, really? Yeah, and it's as much about the atmosphere as it is about buying the drink. So it's probably, when we're talking about um, inexpensive and affordable London, one of the great budget tricks is go buy a, a pint of beer and, and have an evening with uh, new friends. Totally. And if you, you know beer isn't your thing, you can get a, coke. get a Coke or even water or coffee these days. Mm-hmm. And food. Food in pubs Pub is grub. really good these days. I think and a lot of pubs really pride themselves in good food. In the old days, pub grub was not a compliment. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> now, nowadays, it's gastro. Gastro pubs. pubs. So let's brainstorm some ideas that once you've survived the high cost of finding uh, accommodations in London... How are you going to enjoy London free? What are the free attractions? Gillian, what comes to mind to you if you're thinking well, of free immediately things Immediately, you think of the museums. Uh, we're so lucky. We have such a fabulous selection, and the great majority of them are free. The National Gallery, the British Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Science Museum, Tate. British uh, Library. British Library, exactly. Wallace Collection, Imperial War Museum. Yeah. Sir yeah. John Stone. Yeah. These are incredible museums when you think about yeah. them. There's even a free medical museum. So if you've got an interest, there's likely a museum about it in yeah. London. And why are they free? Is that just an ethic that the government pays for these? Is that It is very much part of the ethic that museums, the national museums should be free. The British Museum always has been. Ever since 1753, it's always been free. Not just to the British, but to the world. And why? It's because of the incredibly important collections they have, which are not just about the British, 
that you know for everybody. And a lot of people would say you looted it from those countries anyway. So why oh, charge gracious. their tourists? I mean, to how can you say they? things like that? <laughs> there is not one thing in the British Museum that is stolen. A great deal has been acquired. It's acquired. That's right. Acquisition is or, quite different. Or rescued. <laughs> or rescued. Yes. yes. Saved from the French mainly. There was a time when the sun have... never set on the British Empire, and yeah. while that was there, you made a good point of yes. collecting it all to yes. preserve yes. it and exactly. properly yes. show it off. Yes. Glad you understand that point. The Empire did have a reply to that, you know. What was that? That uh, they, they said the sun never set on the British Empire, and the Empire replied that was because no one would trust an Englishman in the dark. Oh, baby. I think that would resonate with a lot of your colonial uh, friends. <laughs> now, if you are coming to London and you want to understand the world, you go to the British Museum. I mean, that is yeah. the greatest collection of, of Western civilization and beyond, really. Absolutely. And, and it's it, free. And it's free. And it was created so you could compare and contrast civilizations. That's a very good point. And uh, the main civilizations you'll compare and contrast there would be the great Mesopotamian civilizations. Absolutely. You got Egypt. Yeah. You got Greece. Greece Rome. Rome. And some Bits of America, China. too. Native gonna, yeah. America. And are you going to keep Greece? Absolutely, of course. Elgin Marbles. Although the Greeks have built a, their own museum now, The Greeks they? have just opened yes. a museum at the, the base of the, of the Acropolis Hill. Yes. And for <laughs> ages, the English have said, well, you don't have a, an adequate place to put these Elgin Marbles, the Parthenon Marbles, uh, so they're better off here safe in London. And the, the Greeks now have made this quite impressive museum, and I understand they've actually got a room designed for the they marbles have. that you're keeping safe they in have. London. Mm. But there is now another argument which the director of the British Museum has put forward, and that is, how can you say where some of these things should be? Because they have stories to tell from the beginning, and they have completely different stories on their influence in other places, like the Parthenon has had such an influence on Western art and sculpture. So it's, our, it's all of our patrimony. It's all of our patrimony. And at least you offer it to us for free. We are generous like that. That's very good. Now, I noticed a lot of the museums, great as they are, free as they are, they're quite forceful in asking for a donation. Not anymore. Not, Not no. anymore. It used to be you had to pass a desk right. where it suggested a donation. I like to patronize the museums, and if yes. I am going to make a donation, sometimes, because I'm a frugal budget traveler, I'll say, well, I could donate, or I could take that, quote, donation and hire the audio guide. Yes, and I think that makes a lot of yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and they've got into audio guides in a big way. Yeah. The audio guides are excellent. And if they cost a little more than what you're comfortable, consider a donation to the museum, help out the museum, and then get more out of your experience by having those beautiful headphones on as you go through and have the curator of the museum explain it to you. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the um, British Museum do these free tours called eye-opener tours where they're in particular galleries. With a living guide or with, with a, a living guide, yeah. A living guide. And at the National Gallery. Yeah. So that's another way to get more mileage out of your visit is to time your visit with one of these eye-opener yeah. tours. Yes. That's great. Or to take a highlights tour, which is about £8 in the British Museum, or to join uh, someone like London Walk, who provides very good British Excellent Museum idea tours. from a budget travel point yeah. of view. London Walks is not free, but for a very reasonable price, five, yes. five pounds five, or something five, like seven that. Pounds. You yeah. get a local um, historian, or in a lot of cases, a local actor who's yes. very good and has yeah. a very nice stage presence that yeah. takes people on a walk through whatever slice of London. Mm. If you think of the, the tours that London Walks will do, you've got Jack the Ripper, yes. which is unfortunate because that's kind of cheesy. And the most popular. And it's the most popular, so that's sort of the uh, guides would rather get into something a little more weighty than that. Charles Dickens. Yeah, the fire, the yeah. plague, the and, all, and and the, all the villages because London is a very walkable place. Mm -hmm. London really is a collection of villages, yeah. isn't it? There's a lot of pub walks as well that are very good because they're social as well as educational. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about affordable London, and I'm joined by Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper, two blue badge guides from London. What's with this blue badge guides business? It's the qualification for guiding in London. It's a course followed by several exams, and they're both about the knowledge and the skills to guide. Can anybody get a blue badge? Um, I think you could, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm looking for work. <laughs> yeah, I think you would just have to really know your stuff to have oh, that blue badge, and you guys yeah. understandably wear them uh, with pride, and I think and people are going to uh, dedicate some of their time in London, they should go with a quality guide. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Katie's on the phone in Seattle. Katie, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. And hi to Jillian and Tom as well. Hello. Hi. Katie, tell me your thoughts on free London. Well, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to live there in the past as a student, 
and just right out of college, so I definitely know about affordable London. I think it's sad when people think about avoiding London as a travel destination because my three favorite things to do there are all free, which would be parks, museums, and markets. Mm -hmm. Okay, tell me why parks are so enjoyable. Hopefully you can have some good weather, but even if you can't, they're just beautiful to be around and you can be outside and, you know, bring lunch with you and sit outside and have that. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was in, in London one winter day and I decided I'm going to dedicate the better part of this day just to enjoying the parks. And it was wonderful. It was delightful. Local people out feeding the birds, families playing and, and joggers and monuments. You, you stumble upon all these monuments in the parks that just are, are quite overlooked. You do. And yet you can see local people out, yeah, especially in the wintertime. Um, I was even able to enjoy walking out in Hyde Park once in December and we just got cups of coffee and tea and kept our hands warm that way and walked around. And Katie, tell me about your attraction to markets. Well, my favorite market is Borough Market because you can go there on a Saturday morning and enjoy all the fresh and organic foods from farms in England. And then you can, you know, get a sandwich there and then take it and walk along the South Bank. So this is Borough Market. How do you spell that, Tom? B-O-R-O-U-G-H. Borough Market. Yeah, Borough Market's the most popular market in London now. It's very, very trendy. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Trendy and at, at the same time sort of rustic and uh, yeah. tactile and fragrant. And very good quality foods. The cheese shop there. Uh-huh. Yeah, phenomenal. Tell me about that cheese shop. It's just like um, a movie set. The difference is in the movie you don't get the smell either. Ah, it's a festival of malt. It's unbelievable. You walk through the door and there's this almost barrier of smell that you get to and then... All these incredible cheeses all over. And you got these maidens, these these 19th century type yes. artisans that just are evangelical yes. about their English yes. cheese. Passionate. And Passionate. Yeah. And the, there are so many English cheeses. And, you know, you go to France and you get all this French cheese, of course. But you go to England and you've got just as sophisticated of a, of a cheese uh, opportunity, Definitely. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Katie, any other thoughts on Borough Market? Well, I think that you don't have to spend a lot of money to enjoy it. It's really about the atmosphere to me with any market in London. Now, Katie, when you want to find out what to do for entertainment, what's a good source of information as far as you're concerned? I like to utilize Time Out. Mm-hmm. So Time Out is time like out a has... monthly periodical entertainment guide? It's a weekly. weekly. It's a weekly. weekly. So you spend a couple of pounds and you got everything you need right there laid out. Definitely. And you can find festivals and events. I think there's a section for free things, too, mm-hmm. um, which you can use. The Evening Standard nowadays is free of charge. It used to pay for it, but they've also got very good sections there on entertainment. It's this daily paper. You know, for years, one of my rituals when I landed at Heathrow was to buy the Time Out magazine and spend the the tube ride into town looking at the uh, Time Out and seeing what's going on for the next four days that I'm going to be in London. Katie, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Happy travels. I'm speaking with Tom Hooper and Gillian Chadwick. We're talking about affordable and actually free London. A very expensive city in some ways, and a magnificent value in many others. Eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. That's our phone number as we explore London on a budget today on Travel with Rick Steves. Just ahead, more of your calls and tips about how to afford London, where many of the top sites are absolutely free.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Jillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper, two blue badge guides. That means legit, well-trained, and legal. That's correct. And not cheap. I mean, London guides are a good value, but if you're on a tight budget, you need to have an alternative to a private guide. What's an alternative if you're a student on a backpacker's budget and you can't afford a private guide? What would you do, Tom? I think I would do quite a bit of my own research, and you can download some iPod tours as well you can take. But there are some areas where you can walk through where there are signs to describe things as well. That's true. And, of course, there's no language barrier if you speak a little English. No, we have apparently a similar language, so that works (laughs) usually. And uh, I can afford private guides, and if you can afford a private guide, it is the greatest luxury to walk through a place like London with such a rich history with a local blue badge guide. But there's also public sort of guides where one guide will take a group around, and those are put on by different organizations. Yeah, there there are a number of walking tour companies Mm -hmm. in London, of which London Walks is without doubt the oldest and um, best. best. Definitely the best. Do you know David Tucker? That's the yes. guy who runs it. He's we both man. do work for London yes. Walks. Well, you do. Yeah. We're not biased in any way. No, but no, we, of course not. But he's so passionate about this. And yeah. I just, every time, for, for 20 years, I've been going to London and taking London walks, and David will have one of his guides waiting at the monument. And we're going to talk about yeah. the little um, fire that kicked off there in 1666 <laughs> the and yes. burned down the whole city. Yes. But with a local guide to walk through that. Gillian, what's your favorite walk to do in London? I like the literary walks, Shakespeare and Dickens. I do one at Christmas, which is based on Dickens' Christmas Carol. Nice. You actually see locations that are mentioned in the book. So uh, there's a, a wealth of sites connected to literary characters. And, Tom, you must do, there's many different yeah, walks you could do. What's your favorite? Well, I like the contrast between the obvious but actually sometimes full of information you wouldn't expect around Westminster and the Abbey and Buckingham Palace. And I like the village ones as well. Because London really is a collection of villages. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Randy's on the phone from Honolulu in Hawaii. Randy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thoughts on London, uh, if you got no money? Yeah, you know, uh, my wife and I had the luxury of uh, traveling to London a few years ago. Our intent is always to try and travel as economically as possible and spend money when it's required. But we try to find things that we can do um, on the cheap, so to say. And what we really enjoyed in London, we went to a couple of open markets, one, of course, in the Notting Hill area, the Portobello Road. And then we also went down to the borough markets, and those were really fun. And we were just wondering if, on our next trip, if there's any other markets or street fairs that we might be able to look into. You could think of going to Camden Market, uh, which Camden is Market. to the north of the centre of London. It's very alternative. Uh, you can get tattoos and piercings, but also lots of... Uh, <laughs> Various uh, colourful goods, jewellery, clothes, that kind of That's thing. That's a huge sprawling scene, yes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Is that once a week on a certain day? It's every day, but it's best at the weekends. Best on the weekends. And, and it's, you don't have to go and get pierced if no. you don't want to. <laughs> but, I mean, you can people watch, and it's just amazing the type and range of people that are there. Yeah, and great food as well. Not very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Street food in Camden Street Market. Food. Street yes. food in any yeah. of the markets, I suppose, yeah. but Camden yeah. Market really has that yeah. atmosphere. Portobello Road, on the other hand, has been, uh, it's quite, um, it's it doesn't, cha- have, it doesn't have the soul it used no. to have, I it don't doesn't, think. It's, it's mm. changed a lot, really, Portobello Road. I was disappointed Portobello. the last time I did Portobello Road. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what if you want a flea market? I mean, a lot of these markets are just uh, cheap stuff that people are importing and selling, and it doesn't have that much character. Are there any good old-fashioned antique and flea markets? There are flea markets, but they're not notable so much in London as they used to be, but at one end of uh, Portugal Road there is a flea market. At the far end, yeah. at the far yeah. far away from Nottingham so Gate. You, you get the antiques, which basically is anything, including you know, gas masks to pictures to China to you name it, and at the other end is the flea market, and then there's produce between the two. So would we say basically if you want sort of a hip, trendy, sprawling market artisan scene, you would go to Camden Lock? Is it called Camden? Camden? Or just Camden Town. Camden Market. Camden Market. And Camden Town is the underground. And if you want the produce in sort of the wonderful farmer's market, you go to uh, Borough. Borough. Yeah. Actually, another one is Petticoat Lane on a Sunday morning. That's more like a flea market. And there's a craft market in Greenwich, which is... Oh, yeah, that's good. Which is very good Mm. on Sundays, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Randy, does that all make sense to you? Yeah, that makes sense. Is the Camden Market easily accessible uh, via the tube? Yep, yeah. on the northern line to Camden Town. 
and when you get out, you won't miss it yeah, you because can't everybody's miss it. going. There. I remember getting out. It's just like you go with the flow. Yeah, everybody's exactly. going there. You know, I think everything's accessible by the tube. Is there yes. anything yes. in London that you can't yeah. take the tube yeah. to? Yeah, you walk a few blocks, but uh, and if you're prepared to use the buses as well, then it's you've got almost a complete thing. Yeah, we really enjoy the tube as well because it makes everything accessible. But we're really thankful that we did get a chance to take a couple of taxi rides because the London cabs are are so unique and got. A, lot of character. We enjoyed that as well. And did you talk to the driver? Yeah, you know, they're very um, uh, very hospitable Talkative. and welcoming. <laughs> I <laughs> love the cab. Actually, or did the driver talk to you, my people? <laughs> Those drivers, that's their hobby, is talking to their uh, customers. And when I'm researching London, I always collect my questions and my. I'm trying to get a sense of things for my guidebook. And when I take a cab ride, I spend the whole time just going through. I interview the drivers and they're always full of information, full of opinions. They're very candid. They're mm -hmm. not politically oh. correct at all. No, that's, it's not their job to be politically correct. No. No. So, so take advantage yeah. of the cab both as a chance to talk with a, a very quirky, uh, eccentric local uh, and as well as somebody who can get you from A to B very efficiently because mm -hmm. that's just like tour guides. Cabbies in London are quite strictly regulated, aren't they? Oh, very strictly. Very, they're licensed. They have to know every street within a six-mile radius of the center. You know, because I get on in a taxi somewhere else in Europe, and they don't know where the train station is. It's amazing. No. I mean, I got to get out a map for them. But in London, cabs know every little alley, yeah. and the, and they they are, you know, as you probably realize, they're friendly as a result of this as well. Mm. And because of technology, they're pretty. It's pretty hard for them to rip you off. Yes, it is. Their yeah. meters are yeah. very strictly yeah. regulated. And e even the um, mini cabs that are not the black cabs, but they're mini cabs. Even those are licensed in the UK. Now, they phased out the traditional old big black cabs, but the new versions have a lot of the best features yes. of the old cabs. They're spacious, they're boxy, yeah. they can turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that there have been slight design changes is for more easily to be able to get wheelchairs yeah. in and out of the... Okay. And I find, uh, you know, they're huge. You can get four or five people in a cab. And if there, plus are, luggage. Uh, mm. Plus luggage. Mm. If there happens to be four of you traveling together in London... You could almost make cabs your standard operating procedure because yes, you can. I think for four subway fares, when you consider the value of your time yep. and the fun of talking to the cabbie, you could almost say it's a budget trick to share the cab. Yeah. It is. Sometimes, yeah. 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 And if you're on your own, it's the travel card from the tube, the underground system you need. That's right, because if you're on your own, cabs are very expensive. And when you do take the tube in London, they've got the new Oyster card, right? Yes. Now, this is confusing and sort of off-putting to a tourist, but really it's basically you buy the card that gets you sort of legal with the system, and then you get the discounted local rate, and you top it up as you go. Correct. Mm -hmm. And you touch the pad when you go in, and you touch the pad when you go out, and the computer records the journey. And you could, any, any time later, you can touch the pad again and, and it'll show you all the journeys you've taken yes. to do yes. a tally yeah. of how much you put in 20 pounds and you see I've used up eight yeah. of it and you've got 12 to go. Mm -hmm. it's, it a fun, it's a fun technology it to is. figure out. It's very interesting when you see a journey that you can't remember you took. Does that mean somebody's using your card or you've just been no, drink, just visiting too many much pubs? Drink, yeah. <laughs> might have been to a pub. <laughs> One reason to use the tube if you've been going to the pubs, <laughs> exactly. I think. In fact, you don't want a car in London anyways. Randy, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Happy travels. Aloha. Teresa's on the phone in Garden City, Michigan. Teresa, thanks for your call. Hello. Thoughts on London? Uh, yes, um, I've been there twice, and I usually go for the history. So the second time I went back, I was by myself, and I just pretty much went from one walk to the other. Um, one time I walked down the mall to Trafalgar Square, and I guess you call it the mail, right? Yes. <laughs> and then the, the um, other time I um, went down Whitehall, and one time I ended up in Trafalgar Square, and a parade occurred. There's a military parade, which was free and interesting, and I got to see all the veterans. It was, it was really interesting. And I also saw the monument, uh, all in scaffolding. I met a little girl and her mother. She was doing a school project, and... She said, well, we're not going to be able to see the monument. Do you want to go with us to see Pudding Lane, where the Great Fire of 1666 started? <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. I got to talk to them a little bit. So it sounds like you're good at just being out and about in London and, and rolling with the punches, meeting people, and uh, enjoying the city in general. Exactly. And the other thing that um, when the first time I was there, my sister and I stumbled upon uh, several war memorials. We couldn't believe the um, amount of casualties in the war, and we were just very humbled by the 
the contribution that all those people made um, in the wars and everything. I don't think, I guess unless you're a Londoner, you'd never really realize what a sacrifice those, the, mm. the Londoners made. Jillian and Tom, how can an American appreciate the sacrifice that the English have made in the wars of the 20th century? They could start by going to the Imperial War Museum, which has a, a setup of the, the Blitz, how it would have been like going into a shelter during an air raid. There's another museum which is called Britain at War, which has a similar arrangement. Um, so there's a lot that can show you how it was like during the war. Britain at War seems to me more of a commercial venture, whereas the Imperial War Museum yeah. is more of a real serious museum. Mm -hmm. for, for the real historical war bit, the Cabinet War Rooms, definitely. With mm -hmm. the new Churchill. With the new it's, Churchill Museum. And there you get a sense of uh, underground Britain during the darkest days of the Nazi Blitz. Yeah. There, there was one memorial right by um, the Tower of London. What is that memorial? The one that has all the names? It looks almost like our uh, Vietnam. That's merchant uh, sailors and people who died at sea, and they have no grave uh, because they never had a body to put in a grave. So From it's, World uh, War Two. Both wars. Because both wars. the, the yeah, Germans were uh, targeting British shipping, yeah. and, yes. and they had all those U-boats. Yeah. Yeah. In both world wars, it was a merchant ship that was sacked first. The Americans got into the war Indeed. because of uh, sinking and the And one of the newest memorials is the Battle of Britain monument, which is very close to Parliament and Westminster. And on, the embankment. on the embankment. And there's a very uh, impressive memorial to the women who yes. fought in yes. the wars. Bo both in the same year. Yeah, they, they, Whitehall. Yeah. There's even a memorial to the the horses, the the, the animals that yes, died in the wars. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very that's uh, really moving. To it's see very that. moving. Yeah. Where where is that? I stumbled. I was that's just in walking. Park Lane. I was just walking through a park and I came to this. Uh, there's wonderful memorials all mm. over London mm. reminding us how much mm. hard fought history. Yeah. You we Londoners were, have had. We were um, by the Wellington Arch, which is also free. It's amazing. But there's also a, a memorial there too. There's there, there's several. In fact, it's a big mecca for memorials there. There's the but the biggest is the Australia Memorial, mm -hmm. where they don't record the names of the people who were killed. They record the places where they were born, which is really quite touching. As you read these names you've never heard of in the middle of the desert. And then there's the New Zealand Memorial, and there are several others, including the only naked man and a war memorial, I think, in London. Machine. Naked man? Yes. Who's that? And it was, um, I think it's the Machine Gun Corps, isn't it? No, you've got me there. The only naked man I know in London is uh, Napoleon. Well, I didn't know Napoleon, but he is there. <laughs> <laughs> His naked statue in Actually, the Wellington in, in, Museum. Yes, which is yes. very close by in Apsley House. That's quite yeah. right. The Canova statue yes. is very famous. What yes. is with that naked Canova statue of Napoleon? I think uh, Wellington was a huge fan of Napoleon. Well, even Wellington he was is the man who beat, he yes. beat Napoleon, yes. ultimately. Yeah, but he admired him. So he had a statue, tactics. Canova statue of Napoleon, in a sort of a, a classical nude statue yes. of Napoleon. Yeah. Yes. It's a bit weird, yes. really. It's kind of strange, yes. yeah. yeah. Short guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the only thing, other thing that I um, would like to bring to people's attention is, if you're a Harry Potter fan, mm. um, to go to King's Cross and go to, they, they still have a platform nine and three quarters they there. They certainly yes. do. It's, um, yes. it's very funny when my sister and I were there, it was, the happiest place we were there all day because people don't really want to look at it. You know, they're like, did oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. But <laughs> everyone just, And did you try <laughs> running through the wall? I there? did, I did. So you, you, have to. you took hold of the uh, trolley? Yes. And yes. tried to, yes, yeah. Yeah, yes. so it was, it was interesting, you know. So now you guys... We take our that. fiction very seriously. So, Jillian, you were talking about literary tours and so on. Uh -huh. You could actually put a tour together for Harry Potter, There are tours, you? Harry uh -huh. Potter tours, yeah. There's lots of locations you can visit. Uh, Leadenhall Market is an old Victorian street market that was used in the first film as the entrance to mm. Diagon Alley. Teresa, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Happy travels. Thank you, bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about affordable London, and uh, I'm with uh, Gillian Chadwick and Tom Hooper, two blue badge guides from London. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Tom and Gillian, really, there's no real way to sleep cheaply in London that I've found. No, we'd have to agree with that, but we're working on it. 
you know, some people want to stay out in the countryside in a and b and come in, but when you figure your time and money to get in and out of town, it makes no sense. So just get a good listing, get a good guidebook, and find some simple place downtown. There are youth hostels. There are big, giant economic hotels that a lot of low-end British travelers come into town and use, and for 100 pounds, 150, 200 bucks, you've got yourself a double in the center, including breakfast. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but after that, from that platform, you've got very good public transportation, the best museums arguably anywhere, wonderful guided walks, and plenty of activities on the streets. If you think, and, and much of that is, if not very cheap, actually free. If you think of the spectacles, we've got the changing of the guard, Speaker's Corner, those beautiful displays in Herod's. What are some of the spectacles, the, the free activities and events that you can go to? It's definitely worth finding out before you come what is going on. And there's a very good um, website called Visit London. Visit London. Visit London, which is for the key place perhaps to look up because it will give the free festivals. The new um, welcome for visitors in the halls of parliament is quite impressive. It is very impressive. That's the very new indeed. It's where the security is for parliament as well. And there's another free thing you can do when parliament is sitting. You can go into parliament and sit in the visitors' galleries and see the debates down below. And you go under that hammer beam ceiling, the yeah. Grand Hall, yeah. that really predates the... Westminster Hall is one of the oldest buildings you'll see in London. goes all the way back to... And, and exhibits there that are just fascinating yeah. and, and video live video feeds of any discussions yeah. going on. Yeah. And then anybody can see the House of Commons and the House of Lords in action. If you're interested in the legal system, former barrister... Oh, you yeah. can old go Bailey. to the courts, yeah. Uh, the Old Bailey and the Royal mm. Courts of Justice. And you see these guys running around with wigs. With wigs yeah. and gowns, yeah. Dealing out pretty harsh justice. Uh-huh. I couldn't believe the harsh justice. These poor guys off the streets were getting locked up. They will do. Quick. Mm. Quite right, too. <laughs> Quite right. All right. <laughs> and we have a new court you go to now. For the first time ever in our history, we now have a Supreme Court. So that's now open to the public, and there's a very good exhibition which the public can go to free in that as well. That's right next to Westminster Abbey. So people should be prepared to know all of these options. Harrods Mm -hmm. Department Store. I'm not much of a shopper, but I love going into Harrods. Well, it's like going through a museum, isn't it? Particularly the the food hall. The food halls. And they they got people uh, dressed up in characteristic old-time outfits and old-time quality, beautiful tiles and beautiful displays. Uh (laughs) You know, Harrods does big and elegant together like no other place. It does, yes. And it is big and slightly over the top in many respects. Probably not cheap. No, no, not so, even in the sales, yeah. really. Across the street, you got Speaker's Corner every Sunday. Yes, and mm-hmm. Speaker's Corner, which is a marble arch for well over 100 years has been going where... It uh, goes back to the time when you were going to get hung. They would give you one last thing to say and... And, and you'd it. go and say it forever, hoping you'd get a reprieve. And today, you can say anything as long as... As long it's as you treasonable, treasonable yeah. or actually there are rules about language as well about is that right? swear words. And you can't blaspheme the you royal can't blaspheme. family. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta take you can't say things. But there are really only three subjects that people talk about. What is that? Politics, Politics. religion and sex. <laughs> Politics, sex and religion. I guess that's why I find it so interesting. Mm-hmm. I love going to Speaker's Corner. In any combination. <laughs> In any combination. <laughs> Jillian Chadwick, Tom Hooper, thank you so much for sharing with us ways that we can afford your beautiful city, London. Thank you. Thank you. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday, out in the midday, out in the midday sun, in the midday sun. Next, we venture out into the English countryside to sort through surviving fragments of its ancient past. It's the mysteries of prehistoric Britain, just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Some of my most magical moments have been lost in the countryside of England, immersed in its mysterious, misty, ancient history, prehistoric. Heavy, coarse grass, soggy bogs, misty bluffs, long-haired, ragamuffin sheep, following my battered old ordnance survey map that I borrowed from the bed and breakfast. Then I reach my destination. It's my own private stone circle. 
after Stonehenge with all the barbed wire and tour groups and port and the tour guides with their blowhorns, this was really evocative. A circle of lichen and moss-covered stones put there, you know, to function as a celestial calendar by mysterious people 5,000 years ago. I could be in countless places all around Britain, but this was Gidley in Dartmoor, sampling England's prehistoric wonders. We're going to talk right now about prehistoric England, and I'm joined by a tour guide friend of mine from Dartmoor, Roy Nichols. Roy, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. When I talked about that experience walking through a moorland and coming upon my own private Stonehenge, can you relate? Oh, certainly. Uh, many of these stone circles and the stand- individual standing stones are in remote places. Uh, they were built in remote places in the first place, uh, often away from agricultural land. So it's an experience you can have in many places in Britain. There's a lot of history before Henry VIII. Oh, heavens above. I mean, we're talking thousands of years. We think of the pyramids in Egypt. Same things have lots going on in England. Well, exactly. You know, the same sort of time period, two, 3,000 B.C. So when you travel around England, it's really like an open-air folk museum to these stone remnants of those civilizations that we really don't know much about. Well, it's certainly one of the more mysterious periods of history. From about 4,000 B.C., when... Uh, agriculture had been introduced to the British Isles, uh, people started to make and build monuments, be it burial mounds or uh, henge monuments or standing stones or stone circles. For something like two and a half thousand years, they were building these monuments all over the British Isles. So let's talk about Stonehenge, the most famous of these stone remnants of England's mysterious past. First of all, this goes back to the time of the pharaohs, 3000 BC or so, uh, built by people we don't know much about. Uh, Most people think it was a celestial calendar. In your estimate, who made these and why? We know who made them. Uh, Not individuals, of course, but the people, the culture that um, created them. They were some of the first agriculturalists in Britain. For some reason, perhaps part of their culture, they were trying to mark and define celestial movements. They were lunar calendars, solar calendars, places of worship. Related to their planting and their harvesting. Certainly that was one of the roles, not entire role, but nonetheless that was one of the facets, one of its uses, that they could actually mark the seasons. But that was an integral part of their ritual and religious services, I don't doubt. So when civilization reaches the point where people are settling down and becoming farmers instead of, uh, you know, scavengers or whatever, then they've got the uh, wherewithal to coordinate and the need to have something like a big celestial calendar. Exactly. Whether the use of agriculture was a catalyst for the building of these or whether these were a result of agriculture, we don't really know what came first. But there is a sort of indication that it was lined up with where the sun rises and Oh, yes. All of these stones have some purpose like that, but it's it's, it's one of the facets of it. I don't think it's the sole purpose. No, but I mean, to this day, druids gather on the summer solstice. And they do. And, and around. the sort of modern druids who were really sort of come about in from the 19th century onwards have adopted places like Stonehenge and Avebury. But do remember the druids were the priests of our Celtic ancestors who came something like 2,000 years, 1,500, 2,000 years after our ancestors built these sites. Now, we can envision Stonehenge, these huge stones, and and even the biggest stones of Stonehenge, like 20 tons each, were brought from 10 or 20 miles away. But the blue stones, these are several tons each, were carried from Wales. That's right. They're smaller, some, some in the region of about six tons. And but that's, the, what, 100 miles away? 120 miles away, the Priscilla Mountains in South Wales. How did the... And there's no doubt these stones had to come from South Wales. Oh, yes, they've traced, they've, they've traced the very spots where no they came from. There's no way they could come from anywhere else. So they had to transport these five or six-ton stones 120 miles. How on earth did they do that in the time of the... Well, pharaohs? we have to acknowledge and appreciate the skills of our ancestors. They had a good understanding of mechanics... Using no metal tools, they brought these stones overland and by river, 120 miles, using sledges, rafts, and then using levers to actually get them into place. Now, that's the boring engineer's take. What about ley lines? Well, there's a great controversy, and uh, archaeologists don't really acknowledge them, uh, don't really acknowledge the existence of ley lines, but they are supposed lines, uh, lines of power that connect places of importance from our prehistoric times. So if you're a new-agey type that's inclined to believe this, you can take all the Stonehenge-type stuff in England, line them up, and they do make a grid of lines. It was All of this really was first popularized by a chap called Alfred Watkins about 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago. And he wrote a book called The Old Straight Track. And he was the first one that noticed that many of these prehistoric sites and later sites are actually connected by old trackways. He was the first one to really start connecting these imaginary lines across the countryside. So conceivably, if there were these ley lines and these 
special places built along these ley lines where two ley lines would intersect is quite an exciting spot. That's right. And in fact, places like Glastonbury Tor in Somerset, there are many, many lines actually connecting there. So whatever the case is, all over England you can find stone circles and remnants from this era. Oh, certainly. I mean, there isn't a place. There are concentration areas, but nonetheless, they're everywhere. What's your favourite stone circle? Well, I, I do like Avebury as one of the, the larger circles because of its role of its importance. But nonetheless, I do like some of the small local ones that we have, places like Gidley and Dartmoor or Castle Rigg Stone Circle near Keswick in the Lake District. Mm, I love Castle Rigg at sunset. Uh, oh, it's uh, a romantic, beautiful setting. On the drive into Keswick from the motorway. That's right. That's right. Now, if you're thinking about England and mysterious remnants from its past, you've got these chalk figures that are carved under the hillside. You know, we, we think of the... Uh, the chalky cliffs of Dover, but all of South England really is sitting on chalk, isn't it? Right. Until you get down into counties like uh, Devon, you're actually sitting on chalk most of the time. So you cut away the grass and the sod and a little bit of dirt. It's a very simple process. The soil over the chalk is very shallow, often only about 12 inches or 18 inches deep. So once you cut out the, the turf, you're exposing the chalk underneath. So you can make any figure that you want very, very simply. So what happened across South England? Uh, it happened in lots of places. Many of the figures are horse figures. Uh, many of those are later ones, but there are some very early ones. The genuine prehistoric ones would be figures from the people's religion, I suppose. A horse must have had some sort of significance. Well, it's thought that they represent, I mean, the horse has always been a figure from prehistoric times and later times. And it's thought that many of them are dedicated to the Celtic goddess Epona, whose symbol was the horse. And these people were sophisticated enough to actually realize that it's on a slanted hill. It'll be seen from this perspective. They would stretch out the horse so that when you see it from a particular angle, it would look realistic. That's right. Because if you just did it as it was, Obviously, the angle of perspection would make it all out of shape. That's quite sophisticated for people. We, from... we had very sophisticated ancestors. In what century would some of these uh, genuine prehistoric horses be? Well, the, the most famous of these white horses is Uffington in Berkshire. And that one is thought to date probably from about, um, about 2000. 2000, 2000 BC. BC. Yeah. My goodness. And you have some big giants also. So I think the biggest man-made portrayal of a human being arguably is one of these chalk... That's right. Figures. And the most famous of these is the one at Cernabus, or just outside the little village of Cernabus in Dorset. Um, it's a huge figure, 360 yards, 370 feet high. 370 feet from head to toe? Head to toe. And he has a huge erection, doesn't he? He does indeed. He's obviously a male figure, and a very excited male figure as well. Now, this must have been for some sort of fertility uh, concerns for the people that... Well, there's, this there's obviously there's uh, no one opinion on the origins of this figure. But it is thought to have been a fertility symbol of some sort. And right through until quite recent times, the village maidens would spend the night on the, uh, the, on the penis to increase their fertility. And if they did get pregnant, it was one of these sort of extras. Really? Uh, now, wait a second. This guy is 360 feet tall. And with an erection, that's more than enough room for the maiden to actually spread out her sleeping bag. Um, certainly, there's an attraction to it. Um, I suspect if they did become pregnant, it had more to do with wandering shepherds than anything else. But... The wandering shepherds of, what's that guy's name? Serna Abbas. Serna Abbas. Yeah. Where is this giant in the south of England? It's just north of the uh, county town of Dorchester in Dorset. Okay, so lots of exciting reasons to travel across the south of England. All over England, we find lots of uh, uh, Britannia, Londinium, uh, Roman England. Well, the Romans came to Britain finally in 43 AD and they stayed for close to 400 years and they left so many remains. Of course, we've got Hadrian's Wall, which is a great fortification in the north of England. But there's Roman remains all over England. A good indicator of a Roman settlement is either a prefix or a suffix, the word Chester. Chester. Siren or Cester. Exactly. It, well, it comes from the Latin castra, meaning fort. It indicates either a military or civilian settlement. And the Romans would make a straight road, right? Are there they built something like 10,000 miles of road, originally really for the military to move troops around. 10,000 sort of... miles across the empire or, or across Britain? No, just in Britain itself. Just in Britain? Yes. My goodness. Uh, not all of them were sort of major roads, with right. many local trackways and things. But uh... Well, they had quite a presence, quite a determination to stay there. Constantine, the emperor, was actually uh, in Britain for a time. Oh, yes. Uh, there was something like three emperors actually crowned in Britain itself. Now, this Constantine was in uh, what city? In York. In York. So yeah. York was a Roman town. Yeah. In the middle of the 4th century, the previous emperor died and he was declared emperor by his troops. And this was during the fall of Rome, actually. It was not actually during the fall of Rome, but it was very close towards the end of the certainly the Roman presence in Britain. 
and the fall of the, the sort of the main Roman power in, in Rome itself. Because didn't Constantine get some kind of a letter or communicate from the from headquarters say, you know, you're on your own, we're not going to support the Roman presence in Britain anymore? Well, that came a little bit later. There was a famous sort of uh, letter sent to the sort of chieftains of Britain. Uh, it's called, the, or the, the chieftains of Britain actually sent a letter to the Roman authorities in Rome asking for help to protect the country. Uh, it's called the Groans of the Britons. Um, and the Roman authorities wrote back and said, sorry, lads, you're on your own. You're on your own. The yeah. Groans of Britain. The Groans now, of the Britons. what does the Roman presence in Britain have to do with King Arthur? It's thought if Arthur did exist, and uh, Arthur is mentioned in lots of old, uh, sort of particularly Welsh texts, but it's thought that if Arthur did exist, he was of a period towards the end of the Roman Empire or towards sometime just after, perhaps of a, a Roman descent himself, but certainly of a Romanized people who was really trying to protect his way of life and his people during that period when the Anglo-Saxons were invading Britain. So he would have been a champion of the Roman people or of the indigenous people? Well, essentially, by that time, they were much in the same thing. So the Romanized British people. They were Romanized British Celts. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Roy Nichols about his countryside and its ancient heritage. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Rebecca's on the phone in Vidalia, Georgia. Rebecca, thanks for your call. Uh, thank you. I had made a trip uh, to Cornwall. It was at the end of a two-month uh, trip that started in Italy and ended in, uh, in Cornwall. I went to visit my daughter's in-laws, and they took us to uh, Tintagel. And I didn't know much about Tintagel, but uh, we were so fortunate to, uh, to see it as we walked down. There's, you know, there's very steep, it's right on the sea, and... The, and there's very steep steps going down to it, stone steps, and then there's wonderful ruins of this ancient castle. And we were so fortunate because when we got there, the sea was just a beautiful blue, just just bright and gorgeous. And as we were there, the rain came in, and the mist started rising up out of the water, and you just knew King Arthur was around the corner somewhere. It was just magical. Now, so Tintagel, so people know Tintagel is on the northern coast of Cornwall, Cornwall. in the west of England, southwest of England, Mm -hmm. and it is an Mm -hmm. evocative setting, and it's the uh, legendary birthplace of King Arthur? It is, yeah. It's said to be the birthplace of uh, King Arthur. Of course, there's many sites throughout the southwest and uh, southern England, uh, places like Glastonbury, but yes, Tintagel was said to be where King Arthur was born. Rebecca, I interrupt you. I'm sorry. Tell us more about your Tintagel experience. Well, it was it was marvelous because we um, we stayed in the rain. It wasn't so hard that we couldn't still be around, and and we took wonderful pictures with the mist coming up, up from the rocks, up from the sea, and then there were bright bright colored flowers. It was in May that we took great pictures of against the stormy sea, and and then the sun came out again, and we had a wonderful cream tea back up in the village. So it just was perfect. <laughs> That's such a holistic English experience, isn't it? A cream tea, King Arthur. <laughs> Beautiful, rugged coastline. You know, Donna in Elkin, North Carolina, emailed us, and she visited Merlin's Cave when the tide was out, and she found that very evocative, too, with lots of sea life on the walls of the cave and so on. Merlin's Cave is associated with Tintagel? It, it is. is, and I, we missed that. That's for next time. <laughs> well, it's, it's a sea cave that lies below the promontory on which Tintagel stands. And if the tide's right, obviously if it's um, low tide, you can actually walk down some steps um, get onto the seashore and walk just around the little corner into this great sea cave, and it's beautiful. Now, Roy, what is the what is the rationale for English people thinking that Tintagel would have been the birthplace of King Arthur? Well, it, it's only really through legend. There are obviously no documents saying that that's where he was born, but all the legends indicate that he that's where if he did exist, that's was where he was born. But he's he has connections throughout the southwest of Britain, uh, southern Britain, but even as far north as Edinburgh. And Rebecca, when you were in Tintagel, uh, T-I-N-T-A-G-E-L, by the way, for people who are planning their English travels, uh, did you find that the town itself was just a, a welcoming and easy place to sort of settle into? Oh, very much so. We didn't stay. Um, we were doing day trips out from uh, Liscombe, which is where my family lived, um, but very easy to drive around in and to uh, walk up the cliffs from the castle to a chapel um, that's up on the top, and it's a, a great place to uh, to walk around. And, of course, there's so many little fishing villages scattered all over that part of uh, Cornwall that you need a car, but it's a delightful place to visit. They were quite enthusiastic about their uh, tourism and their association with uh, King Arthur. I remember there's a pub in town called the Ex... Get ready. Ex- the, Ex- Excalibur. The Excalibur. Oh, right. <laughs> Was that still there, Roy? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. I haven't been for a couple of years. Did you but... see it, Rebecca? 
Yes, I remember seeing, uh, and several shops with some uh, variation of that name. Uh, the English have a wonderful <laughs> way with their little shop titles and uh, funny, funny plays on words, the Excalibur. <laughs> Rebecca, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Roy, there's so much history in medieval and ancient uh, Britain. you got the Vikings actually coming into England. Yeah, once the Roman Empire had fallen, um, the Roman presence in, in Britain had gone, you have a sort of um, vacuum a cultural and political vacuum, and you have the beginnings of settlement from outside and other parts of Europe, beginning with the Anglo-Saxons, who started coming into Britain in the late 5th century through the 6th and 7th century. And then really from the sort of 9th century onwards, you've got the period of the Vikings. From Denmark mostly were these Vikings? Um, from all over, sort all of over Scandinavia. Scandinavia. And um, York was their capital, right? Well, the, the Danish Vikings actually settled in York, and much of what we know of, uh, of what we think of as Yorkshire today is settled by the, the uh, Danish so Vikings. So that's like the 8th, the 900s, and then 1066, we've got... The, the Normans coming in, and in fact the Normans, although they were sort of uh, uh, French uh, politically and culturally by this stage, in fact their ancestors had been Vikings as well, and the very term Norman means Northman. And when you travel around England today, you find the remnants of this, whether it's haunted walks or whether it's sort of creepy vibes for the Holy Grail and what's going on in Glastonbury, or whether it's visiting Roman ruins in the far north of England. When you go to Glastonbury, here you're finding... 21st century appreciation of, of England's pagan past. Yes, you're right. It's, it really is a centre for the New Age beliefs. And so you get this traditional English market town, you know, rubbing shoulders with all the New Age beliefs and so many shops dedicated to crystals and uh, all of those different aspects of that. And this Holy Grail business and everything, there's some historical basis because Joseph of... Ar- Arimathea. He came to England actually in the time of Christ. Well, it, it, the legend says that sometime after the death of Christ, Joseph Arimathea with a band of followers brought Christianity to England or what would become England, uh, bringing with him the Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail was the, the vessel used at the Last Supper. And it, it, it's lost and buried somewhere in around Glastonbury. Where? If I knew that, I'd be very, very famous. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Roy Nichols about the wonders of ancient, prehistoric, and medieval Britain, the misty, deep past. Roy, if you're going to pick a single spot where you feel sort of the wonders of prehistoric Britain, where would that be? I would still have to go to one of the great stone circles uh, somewhere, particularly Avebury, because that's one of my favorites, I think. And Avebury, an hour east of Bath, wonderful side trip from Bath, by the way. Why Avebury instead of Stonehenge? It's less touristy than uh, Stonehenge. You have access to the whole site. You can actually wander through and round the stones. So it's much more evocative. It's a much more hands-on experience in every sense. Roy Nichols, thank you very much for sharing uh, your country's distant past. It's been my pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. We're assisted by Sarah McCormick, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including Tom and Jillian's suggestions for going on a splurge in London. Listen again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Great Britain, Ireland, and beyond. On Rick's website, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To prepare for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.